Open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. And last week we finished our 10-week march through the Ten Commandments. One commandment every single week reminding ourselves of God's good binding law, of its perfect standards which leave us wanting, of its wisdom in being a guide for our life and how it applies to us and how we can honor God by it. This week we come and we see a most startling reaction from the Israelites at the closing of the reading or the the proclamation of God's law from Mount Sinai. Because because of the scene that was set that day, the mountain, we'll, we'll read some of what occurred up on that mountain again from Exodus 19. And because the people all stood there to hear the words and the way it would have gone down on that day, this morning what I'm going to ask you to do is actually be upstanding for the reading of the word as we rehearse and we put ourselves into the scene of the Israelites that day. So please be upstanding as I read the word of God over us. As we sung, I command you, behold the holy God who speaks through scripture. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, the scene is set. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses Went up. In the following verses, Moses returns down among the people. And we hear this in Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do your, any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus says the Lord. Remain standing as we hear their response. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus he shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Right in this house this morning, the Lord has made his name to be remembered in the glory of his own son. And he is here to bless us. Let me read that promise again. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. May God bless in our midst the reading of his own powerful law. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. The emphatic response that we are meant to read from this passage and witness in the congregation of the Israelites is that they were struck with a deathly mortifying fear at the reading of God's own word. Every, every line of the commandments came down heavier on their souls like a, like a giant hammer from heaven, driving them deeper and deeper into their condemnation and guilt as, as they came thinking they were ready. They had cleansed themselves, they had bathed, they had had a sacrifice and they gathered and, and they're about to meet God and rather hastily in Exodus 19 verse 8, they promised everything you command God, we will do, have at it, let's hear what you have to say. And as he reads out his word, as he proclaims his law, his requirement, what he will hold them to in judgment and in order to bless them, they are driven deeper and deeper into dread and despair as they hear the mighty law of God. It's, it's as if they were embodying what would, what would come to be written in Psalm 24. They came to embody and they were thinking along the same lines of that psalm which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. Here's the hopeless answer for us. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. They, they, they may not have been fully aware as we are of all that's going to be spoken afterwards, but to some degree they are understanding the, 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 the dynamism of God's law. 
That it's not some static, remember we, we studied this uh, many weeks ago before we started the Ten Commandments and we understood that in God's law it's, it's not a, a mere static, one-layered, two-dimensional law. But when God speaks to one thing, he speaks categorically. That is every other scene underneath it or leading to it, every other desire related to it is also sinful. And it's not just outward sins, it's also an inward law. It, it, it commands against inward sins. And, and, and not only does it command against the things negatively, but also the flip side of it, the absolute positive version ought to be fully expected from each person. So there's now they're sitting here, they're standing, they've heard the law, it has shaken them in their boots, and they recognize that there is no room for escape from this God. There is only room for judgment. If their hearts are born naked towards this God who sees all things and commands this law, they are right to be afraid. You can, you can imagine as if, as if the Israelites, in a spiritual sense, are surrounded by God's, God's judging armies. That the heaven's drummers, the military drummers, play the tunes of judgment. The infantry of horror is marshalling at the mountain. The artillery of dread, as Spurgeon calls it. The artillery of dread is arrayed around the Israelites, pointing at their hearts. The cavalry of terror is in formation at the mountaintop. The swords and spears of threatening are being brandished in the air and sparkling in the light. The battalions of God's omnipotence are ready to carry out the king's commands of condemnation. The reason they were so afraid, and rightly, is because God was giving to the Israelites, and through the word of God to us, a taste of the final day of judgment. A taste, just a, just a momentary snippet of the day of God's final judgment that will be poured out on the day that Jesus returns, to be glorified among his saints, and to be exalted as the judge of the earth, the living and the dead will be raised and placed before him. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'll be every commandment ever broken will find its full and absolute just consequence poured out on the souls that are thrown into hell. It will be a day that shakes and quakes every soul. The, the, the Revelation says even, even the mighty ones, the kings and the, the lords of the earth will call out to inanimate objects like rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, coming in glory. They are fearful this day with very, very good reason. And so they say in verse 19, Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Now this is one of the purposes of the law of God. One of the points of the law of God, the, the, the grand purpose of God's law, the reason that he speaks it from heaven in, in this way to them and, and codifies it in the, Lord of, law, in the word of God for us to read is so that you become helpless and hopeless and desperate and depressed. That's the point. How many seeker-sensitive churches might critique Moses and God at this point and say that the people don't feel all that uh, uh, patted on the back and all that welcomed here this morning? You're not meant to. If you've met a God that makes you feel entirely comfortable in your sin, it's not God. Or it's a God of your own making who will take you to hell. But the true God will send you there. The true God is fearful. And the true God speaks his law to leave us realizing that our bank account is empty. 
that our clothes are tattered and torn, that before him we stand guilty and naked with no hope of of mercy whatever in his law. If you're a Christian, you might have had an extended sense of this experience when you were coming to Jesus. I'm not going to normalize it as if you don't have a real conversion if you didn't spend months under this conviction, but sometimes God does that. He did it to the great Charles Spurgeon, who had become a gospel preacher. He did it to David Brainerd. Uh, I recognize that I I don't know exactly when I was converted, but I remember in my ninth grade, a a 14-year-old kid, I thought I was very religious, righteous, and acceptable to God because I was on all the volunteer slips at our church. I was helping in the kids' church. I was serving to set up. I was doing everything perfectly. What an idiot a 14-year-old boy has to be, right? Any, any 14, 15, 16-year-old fellas in the room would be stupid enough to think yourself righteous before God? I was. And there was somebody at my church who had pulled me aside and he just did a little bit of a Bible study with me on Isaiah 6 on the holiness of God and the response that people usually have to that and the fact that most Christians today don't even realize that God is allowed to and sometimes even does kill people for being so profane in his presence. That night I went home and I could not help but fall on my face. I I had a cupboard. For some reason, that was the direction I prayed. I was religious. I felt like that was a holy way to pray. But but I I prayed on my, I I shut my door. I fell on my face and I I, I can't say prayed. I I wept. I was shaken with the reality that I'd never thought I'd ever heard before. I'd never remembered hearing this taught before. The holiness of God that leaves us in dread. I, I felt almost as a, as, a, as a traitor to my own soul when I had to get up and go to a meal or, or get into bed. Sometimes I, I fell asleep there on the, on, on the ground and that lasted for months. I, I felt ashamed to say that the sort of fear had, had worn off and I got more and more used to it. I remember we used to sing the song uh, that, that, that said in the lyrics at my church growing up, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I couldn't utter the words, holy, holy, holy. I was convinced that my my lust-filled, deceptive, sinful heart would be struck dead. My heart would stop beating if I dared uttered those words. I don't know when I was saved, but I know for certain, uh, uh, just a couple of years later, I found the power of the grace of God in the gospel and felt, felt liberated once again. David Brainerd tells this story of of when he was converted. He was a missionary in the 1740s to uh, the American Indians among the colonies. And he tells this story that when he was converted, he was a a depressed man, a a frail spirit kind of guy, always feeling uh, pessimistic as if the Lord was turned against everything. And in his conversion, he had this extended period of not being able to place his faith in Jesus. He wasn't an atheist. He didn't disbelieve, he just, like every one of us, was unable to believe in Christ upon his own power. And one of the things that that made him despise the whole salvation process, despise the fact that he had to be saved, one of the things that kept him at odds with God for so long, he says in his biography, was the strictness of the law of God. He said, and I wonder if you can relate, I found it was impossible for me, after my utmost pains and efforts, to answer the demands of the law. I often made new resolutions, and as often as I did, 
I broke them. I, I resonate with this. As a, as a teenager, a righteous, religious kid, always making new promises, new vows. I'd write them out. I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to be perfect in this law now, white-knuckling it. And as quickly as I did, I broke them. I imputed the, the whole of this, the whole to carelessness and the want of being more watchful. And so, of course, I needed to be more watchful, and I called myself a fool for my negligence. But when, upon a greater resolution and fasting, upon greater endeavors, and upon the closer application of myself to prayer, I found all attempts to fail. And then I quarreled with the law of God as being so unreasonably rigid I thought, it is a, if it extended only to my outward actions and behaviors, I could bear with the law of God. But I found it condemned me for my evil thoughts and my sins of my heart, from which I could not possibly prevent myself. If you have not found the liberating, powerful, joy-filled glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ, do not kid yourself that you are outside of that experience. You may feel better. You may feel more secure. You may feel more safe and think, I'm, I'm just not one of those religious types. I just don't mind. But, but you cannot kid yourself. You are in that very position. That the law of God is arrayed about you with its spears pointing towards you. And there is nothing you can do, no deal you can broker, no, no obedience you can muster that will ever blunten a single point of the spears of God's justice arrayed against you. This is the point of the law of God, to leave you helpless and hopeless and empty and despairing of ever being made acceptable to God on the grounds of the law. God will justify nobody on the grounds of their obedience to his law. He will accept nobody into the kingdom on the grounds of your perfect obedience or upright actions according to his law. All that the law knows how to do is condemn you. It wasn't designed to save you. All that the law was meant to do is leave you wanting and leave you empty and show you the emptiness of your soul. That's the point of the law. The only way God ever accepts anybody, the only way he ever receives somebody coming to him and gives eternal life to a soul and takes them out of the line going towards eternal hell is those who say, I am empty, I am weak, I am vile, I am impotent, but God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus died, and that is my only hope. The law is meant to leave us broken. We, we discussed this law and gospel distinction as we started out this, our sermons on the Ten Commandments. That This is how God wants us to understand his law. It drives us to Jesus for salvation. Jesus then gives us the law, being saved, forgiven people, to live righteously and obey. But by way of salvation, the law can help you not at all. There's an old hymn, and, and the author John, it was a poem, he, he wrote this of the law compared to the gospel. He says, run John and work, the law commands, yet it gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. 
The gospel is God's avenue of salvation. The gospel is God's way to give you faith, give you life, give you the spirit, give you redemption and freedom from sin and set you on the course for eternal life. You may, you may feel this morning that you don't, you don't have enough faith to believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus, he'll give you the faith. They feel like you, you're definitely not good enough. That's the point. Come to Jesus. You never need to be good enough for Jesus. The standard of good enough to receive Jesus is sinner. Defiled, sinful, wicked sinner who has done things, searched things, watched things, spoken of things, of which would be entirely inappropriate to list here this morning at church. I know that we are all R-rated sinners. The gospel is not for G-rated sinners. There is no such thing. For the most horrible of sinners, the gospel is the way that God holds out to you your salvation. These are the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. They leave every one of us who heard it with ears to hear entirely hopeless to ever be made right on our own standing. And therefore, we cry out, I need a mediator. I need Jesus. And in their own way, this is what the Israelites cry out. That's what the Israelites are, in essence, saying when they literally get up and flee. It's like Moses is standing in front of all of the people looking at the mountain, and as he turns around to say, well, congregation, what a powerful word that was, they're gone. There's just a dust cloud where they've, where they've been escaping to the horizon. And Deuteronomy tells us of this account that they gather their elders and their leaders, send them back to Moses... And then they tell him, the people aren't keen on coming, neither are we. How about you do the march up to the mountain, come back and whisper quietly after warning us what God says. How's that? That's the point of what they do. We, we, we see it in, in, uh, in verse 20 to 21 of chapter 20. Uh, uh, sorry, in verse 19, they were saying that you speak, we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses, uh, uh, he agrees to this. He, he, he thinks implicitly, we seem in Exodus 20, he thinks that's a good idea. They, they really did hear the law. They're, they're thinking rightly if they are afraid to approach God. In fact, in Deuteronomy's accounting of this story, God commends them. And he says, oh, oh, I wish that you would always have the kind of spirit amongst you that you're exhibiting right now. I wish you would always think that I'm this holy. I wish you would always remember how sinful you are. I wish you would always trust in Moses, my appointed spokesperson, to represent me. But will they? Do they do this? I'm sorry to ruin the story of Exodus for you. If your, if your hope was really built up on these Israelites who are sounding pretty good at this point, they fail. Within a few chapters, they're worshipping a golden image. Within a few chapters, again, they're, they're blaspheming Moses and calling him to be dead. They're, they're, they're seeking other ways and other avenues of life outside of God. But this, they got right. That, that to meet with Yahweh, to be in covenant relationship with a holy God, which is what they agreed to in Exodus 19, to be in covenant relationship with God, somebody somehow has to stand in between God and us and broker a deal. Somebody has to represent us and go for us. Somebody has to uh, be speaking for God while sparing us the fearful experience of hearing God's own voice. In other words, uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've watched a, a mafia movie here or there, or you've seen, you love crime drama series. I love those. Uh, uh, or, or maybe a, a, a real-life doco or something. And, or maybe, maybe this has been you. 
I don't know. But, but, but at some point when you realize that the cops are there, you're done for, the law has found you out, what, what comes out of the person's mouth? I want a lawyer. I'm going to say nothing else till I have a lawyer. That's what, that's what the Israelites are saying here. When they hear the law read to them, their mouths are shut. They say, I want a lawyer. I, I won't speak to God anymore until there's somebody in between us. But, but more than a lawyer is, is an ambassador. They need somebody to represent them, not merely legally, but even going into his presence physically because they could not handle it. They cry out for a mediator and a, uh, 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 a, 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 an ambassador because they could not stand the one thing they knew they needed. They know they need God. They know they need to be on his right side. They know they need his word. But they cannot stand his word, his presence, or his voice. And so they send in Moses. However, while they stand far off and they sort of run to the hills and and they're very happy with this arrangement, we'll stay a few kilometers back, Moses will go up the mountain. And they feel safe. And in a sense, they are. God commends this whole uh, arrangement and and he's willing to work with that. He says, here's my, my chosen spokesperson, Moses. He'll represent you. We see in verse 20 that Moses goes up and speaks to God, and God speaks to Moses. Moses comes back down and he speaks to the people. This would be the arrangement of, in biblical language, we call this the mediator. Somebody to go between the two parties of man and God. Somebody to, to touch both sides and, and speak for God to the people and speak for the people to God and, and bring about some kind of covenant relationship. There's always needing a mediator between God and sinful man. While God commends that arrangement, <coughs> there's a folly in it, isn't there? Because the Israelites are not actually safe long term from the holiness and the judgment of God that they met with at Mount Sinai. Adam knew this. He heard God coming, knew himself a sinner, ran and got some leaves and hid behind a tree. Pretty infantile move. God found him, would you, would you believe? And then like Psalm 139, uh, he says, where will I go to, free, to flee from the Lord? If I go down to the grave, to Sheol, there you are. If I go to the furthest reaches of the oceans, oop, you found me. Uh, Jonah found this, that he see, sought to, to run away from Yahweh's voice and command, and he jumped on a boat down at Joppa and flew off into the Mediterranean Sea, and guess what? God found him. Hebrews 9 tells us this as well, that it is appointed for each man to die once and then face judgment. So any separation that Moses is giving to the Israelites, any sense of escaping his justice over their souls that the, 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 the Israelites are, 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 are comforting themselves with, any, any release from God's judgment is only momentary with Moses. He's a good mediator. He's God's given mediator, but he can do nothing for their eternal souls. At death, they will end up finding him again. There they will face judgment, and there they will be punished with every sin that was broken against the Ten Commandments and every other law God gives. In other words, Moses is good for the Mosaic Covenant. Moses is a good mediator for the Old Covenant. There's nothing wrong with his mediation for the purpose of that national covenant in the land with that law. But the Bible does not merely speak to us of a covenant between God and man for good life in this world. For good life in in even the chosen land of, of Canaan. 
for God's chosen people, the Israelites. That's not the limit to which God reveals himself in Scripture. It is infinitely greater than that. The life that God comes to give is an eternal life beyond the grave. It is a glorified life in a new heavens and new earth to all people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that will come to him. And the question then becomes, who is a mediator for us in an eternal sense? If Moses is this limited, incompetent, ultimately mediator, who then will supply a mediation between God? And of course, the answer of Scripture is Jesus Christ, God's one and only begotten, beloved Son. Hebrews 3 picks up on this specifically. It actually alludes to this very account. Here's what Hebrews 3 says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later, but... Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was faithful. He did his job. He did very well in the house as a servant. Guess what? Jesus came over the house as a son. He was everything Moses had ever pointed to. Moses came down and says, this is what I heard from God. This is, this is what God showed me. This is what I need to tell you God thinks. This is what God said about your sin. Uh, You have questions. Let me go and ask God and I'll come back and tell you. That's not how Jesus ministered. Jesus said, you hear me, you hear the Father. You see me, the Son, you see the Father. You worship me, you are worshiping the Father. You know me, you know the Father. You love me, you love the Father. You receive me, you receive the Father. This is Jesus' ministry. That is not merely a servant speaking from God. He is God, the Son, in the flesh to reveal to us his ultimate, glorious, powerful mediation. The Israelites were right to crave a representative, but their understanding was capped. Their faith was limited. But in the scriptures, we now have the fuller revelation of God. That Jesus does not just tell us about God. He is God. The the, the Moses in verse 21, it says, look at verse 21, it's, it's an interesting phrase. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We're told that God had descended in a fire. Now in some kind of way, it's as if God's presence is, is kind of like a black hole. That around it is this all-absorbing, all-consuming flame. And yet at the heart of the flame, there's a thick darkness where even light itself fails to travel. And Moses goes into the heart of the flame where God was. And at the heart of the flame, there is thick darkness where he sees nothing but understands the glory of God being present. And this is what Jesus does. He, He goes before God for us, fully man representing us in a way Moses never could. Because Moses had to make sacrifices for his own sin. God would look on Moses and say, oh, you're representing the Israelites? I will momentarily, until Jesus comes, overlook your sin. I will temper the edge of the blade of the law so that you can mediate. 
But when Jesus comes, he comes with perfect and full obedience, completely satisfying the law, and then actually absorb God's wrath due to the law for our sins. Jesus is much better. Jesus is the more glorious Moses, the better mediator who represents us. So now, call on him. Do not refuse Jesus who speaks from Mount Zion, the the hill of salvation, who speaks from heaven. Do not refuse him. And then we see these verses as we go on. 22 to, to 26. It's pretty cryptic. I understand that as we read it, everything, everything had this poetic flow. And then you got to this part that mentioned that God prefers round rocks, not cut square ones, and don't come naked to church. And you go, that, that is a weird paragraph at, at the end of the Ten Commandments. Why, don't we, why is that not memorized as we're memorizing the Ten Commandments? Well, maybe, maybe it should be. But here's what God, God says in verse 22 through to 26. Basically, he tells them, don't make idols of gold or silver and worship them. He says, when you make a sacrifice on the altar, don't come and, and carve the stones and decorate it and make them beautiful. He says, either use ones of dirt, of earth, just heap together some, some dirt, or find rocks that you haven't cut, put them together, offer on that. And then he says also, don't make them high and lifted up with stairs and don't bear your nakedness upon them. Now, some people think, well, bonds hadn't been around yet. They hadn't invented underwear. So when you wear a tunic and you walk up on stairs, the altar can see up your man skirt. Maybe. Much more likely, he's actually referring in all three cases to the Canaanite worship of the people that the Israelites were about to come and dispossess. They made images of God. They, they, they carved the altar to be beautiful. And then they came and approached God naked. And everything about their worship screamed out of human worthiness. Human greatness. We can carve God how we think him. We make him. He owes his life to us, really. And we're going to make these beautiful, carved, decorated, chiseled altars that are even lifted up on stairs. And we will come to him completely uncovered because we are worthy to do so. And God was telling the Israelites, against everything the Egyptians taught you, against everything the Canaanites will show you, there is nothing about you that makes our covenant relationship work. There's nothing about you or what you bring to the table that makes my relationship with you favorable. So, when you make an altar, don't even make it. Just push rocks together. Don't don't carve it and make it beautiful. It's not the altar I'm looking at. Don't come naked, come dressed, and don't come exalting yourself. Just come to the flat ground that, that I made. Why? God was screaming to them that the reason I forgive Your sin is because of the sacrifice made, not because of the beauty of the altar or the impressiveness of the worshiper. The sacrifice was the point to God. And so he says here, he mentions the the peace offering and the burnt offering that they will be making in verse 24. And he says, every place you make an offering like that, every place the sacrifice is made, I will come and I will bless you all. There's these two sacrifices, which also, would you believe it, point to Jesus. 
The first is the burnt offering. That's the, that's the guilt offering or the sin offering that you would bring because you've broken the law. You offer up to God a lamb or an ox or some other animal. It is killed and the whole body is burned. It's just consumed by fire. You know what that's an image of? The consuming wrath of God that you deserve to be destroyed and instead God is allowing this animal to be destroyed. But then there was also the fellowship offering or what's called here the, the peace offering. And this one's amazing. This one, you bring your animal. And after having had your sins consumed on the altar, then you bring an animal. It is portioned up. The Lord takes the fat pieces and the priest burns it to God, a beautiful barbecue smell. And the rest is cooked to medium rare and served back to the worshiper. The entrails, the filthy parts, the skin is all taken away. And the worshiper is invited to have a meal with God. And Jesus, Jesus is pictured in both of these sacrifices. That he came down and was consumed and absorbed and destroyed and killed and buried by the wrath of God into the grave. Done. Sin paid for. But Jesus also said, didn't he, in John 6, come and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Only then will you have salvation. And this is the invitation of Jesus. Come to me and be saved by, by communing around the altar of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And in doing so, we come into covenant relationship with God through faith. Jesus is the answer to the pain of the law. Jesus is the answer to our need of a mediator. And Jesus is the sacrifice which made makes us acceptable to God entirely. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and following. You can go there if you wish. It's, a, it's about seven or eight verses. And, and, and we're indebted to read this passage in closing because it's giving comment, it's giving apostolic commentary and exegesis on precisely the passage we've read this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. It's just full of comparing and contrasting us, a church coming to worship Jesus, comparing us to the Israelites who went to Mount Sinai. Verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You say, I'm in Logan. Yes, the heavenly Jerusalem where we worship Jesus in spirit and truth. And to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, not in military attire, to destroy you in festal gathering, to praise when every sinner comes to Jesus to be saved. Verse 23, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, all of our brothers and sisters who are dead but with Jesus now, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him 
who is speaking. The law demands that you, that you, you realize you're bankrupt and fly to Jesus. The, the, the need of a mediator, Moses' whole ministry shows to you, you need Jesus who can mediate God to you. And this, this picture of the sacrifices on an altar, this pure worship shows that Jesus welcomes you with open arms to come and commune in the grace of God. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He commands you, sinner, come to God through himself and be saved. Come to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, and be forgiven. He commands you. And there is a threat here. There is a fearful threat that we should tremble more than the Israelites did. For if we, if we are sitting happy to, to neglect, to remain callous while Jesus speaks through the word of God in church to tell you to come to him and be saved. If you sit calloused, you are in a worse situation than the Israelites who were to be judged back in that day. You must come. Come needy. Come, come desperate, come empty, come naked, come as a sinner, come guilty, come exactly as you are, but come to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, the great, the great answer to every, every debt and every guilt and every crime and every sin and every evil that we have ever committed, we find fully paid, entirely absorbed, in the death of Jesus Christ, who was consumed by your wrath, who himself consumed and swallowed up death and the punishment for our sin. We thank you that the Lord drives us to him like, like barbed wire around us. It does not let us push into the, the folly of self-righteousness. Father God, we thank you that the Lord points us to Jesus and we thank you for giving Christ. We thank you that, that he represents us. He prays for us. He, he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He, he, he speaks to God on our behalf, not merely to bring about the, the consecration of our flesh, but to give a clean conscience, a washed soul that can remain in your presence without fear, but with perfect love that casts out fear. We thank you, Jesus, that you were and remain to be the perfect sacrifice which, which means there will never need to be another sacrifice made. We thank you, Jesus. We glorify you for your grace, your mercy, your power, your, your pity, your, 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 your kindness and compassion towards us who are merely sinners. We ask, Lord God, that you would, you would enable us, that, you would, that, that if there is anyone still dead in their sins, that those who still stand far off but who will meet you on judgment day, we ask that you would bring them to Jesus now to be saved, that they would flee to him and be converted. And Father God, we who know you, would you make us to be righteous? Would you make us to be faithful, obedient, confessing of our sin, trusting in the atonement of Jesus, but working hard to obey your law by your spirit because it is good and we love it. Father God, we pray all of this in the name of our mediator who carries our cases and our names before the throne of God, our great high priest, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.